HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit corin.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, we're celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hello, welcome to Japanese. I'm Yohoseki Katema, a food writer and director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deeper understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcasting live from a studio at Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every daily in the supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear dashi, ramen, izakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is still mystery for many people, so I'll try to demystify it in this program with my good guests. And my guest today is Stephen Lyman, who is known as a leading shochu expert and joined me twice to talk about shochu on episodes 23 and 109. And he moved to Japan last year and now lives in the mecca of shochu, Fukuoka Prefecture in Japan. And Stephen's recent, uh, Stephen recently published a very interesting book titled The Complete Guide to Japan, Japanese Drinks. And also, he now has a cool shochu bar in Fukuoka. So today, we'll discuss his new life in Japan, his new book, and his new bar, and Japanese drink culture that he deeply observes as a resident of Japan now, and much, much more. But quickly, before we start, Japan is available on the Heritage Radio Network website, as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. So please go to iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify, and subscribe to Japanese. And please write a review. We really appreciate your feedback. Also, if you have ideas about the topics of the show or show guests, please let us know. You can email us at japanese at heritageradionetwork.org or akikokatema.com. Now let's start a conversation with Stephen Lyman. Hello, Stephen. Hello. Thank you for having me back. Yeah, very exciting to have you back all the way from Japan. So, uh, so first of all, for listeners who have not listened to the previous episodes. Uh, tell us about your background briefly. Uh, so I'm actually a medical researcher. <laughs> that, that's <laughs> my main, my main uh, occupation. 
And I discovered shochu, I guess going even further back, I discovered izakaya、mm. in, in New York、uh, shortly after I moved here in 2002. And I didn't really know what an izakaya was. I just knew there was a Japanese restaurant that served more than sushi.、Mm. Um, and then eventually I figured it out. And、uh, one night at izakaya, I discovered shochu.、Mm. And the waitress described it as Japanese vodka, which. I'm not a vodka fan. I, I'll, I'll be honest. It's just too clean and light and、mm-hmm. it just doesn't taste like much. And I was more of a whiskey drinker, wine drinker. And, but shochu was really interesting to me because you could taste the original ingredient.、Mm. A barley shochu generally tastes like barley, and a sweet potato shochu tastes like sweet potato, and a rice shochu tastes like rice.、Mm. And、uh, it was really interesting to find a drink that, in many ways, reminds me more of beer or wine than、mm. it does of a spirit. Uh, and then, as I got to drink it and explore it more, I started a website,、uh, kampai.us,、mm. uh, which hasn't been updated recently because it's undergoing a renovation. And hopefully, <laughs> we'll have a relaunch soon.、Um, and that, that became my entryway into the food and drinks world、uh, in New York and then in, also in Japan.、Mm. And I started to meet the makers when they'd come here for、uh, PR visits. And through that, I ended up going to. Kyushu for the first time. So, Kyushu is essentially、uh, where virtually all shochu in Japan is made.、Mm-hmm. More than 90% of it's made in Kyushu.、Uh, Fukuoka is in north, northern Kyushu.、Um, and I just fell in love with the area and began working every year in a distillery in Kagoshima、mm-hmm. in southern Kyushu、uh, to learn how to make it and learn more about it. And as I went That deep, I just became obsessed. <laughs> And、uh, it really has, has changed my life in ways that I never would have guessed when I walked into that izakaya about、mm. 12 years ago. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> so,、um, yeah, you'll be working as a kind of a shochu ambassador for Japanese shochu association. That's right. I was, when I was in New York, I was working as a, a, a consultant for the Japanese sake and shochu makers association.、Mm. Uh, that ended when I decided to move to Japan, but I still、uh, work closely with them and with JETRO, the Japanese External Trade Organization.、Mm. And in, I believe it was 2015, it might have been 2016, I apologize, <laughs> I was、uh, named a shochu ambassador by the Cool Japan Project.、Mm. Uh, and subsequent to that, Christopher Pellegrini also received that designation. But as far as I, I know, we're the only two、mm. foreigners who have been. Designated as official shochu ambassadors.、Right. Oh, that's really bravo because I think there are many sake experts now. I mean, thanks to John Gontner, who has been teaching all the experts in English, but I think there are only very few, including you and Christopher, who released the trend of shochu. That's really amazing drink. Yeah. So before the show, we were talking how I feel so much better drinking shochu instead of other. You know, alcoholic beverages. So, yeah, I really think there's a big future for shochu. I certainly hope so. Yeah. The, the health benefit that you talk about, it's so there's a couple of reasons, I think.、Uh, one is the fact that it's distilled, there's no residual sugars.、Mm. And you're, again, I'm getting into my medical research last year, but <laughs>、uh, with no residual sugars,、uh, your liver has a hard time processing sugar and alcohol simultaneously.、Mm. And that's where a lot of the hangover symptoms come from. Uh, is, the, is your body's own struggle to metabolize a- alcohol and sugar. And so, wine, sake, and beer have a, a lot of residual sugar because they're fermented drinks. They're、mm. not distilled. Distilled drinks have no sugar left because you've extracted the alcohol、right. from, from the fermentation. So, that's one reason. And that really is true of any spirit, 
but then shochu is usually diluted to 20 to 25 percent alcohol so it's lower proof than whiskeys and gins and vodkas and things like that mm. uh, which helps so you can have more glasses without as much alcohol going into your system and then i think the last reason is because it's single distilled uh, there are actually fatty acids and amino acids that uh, are captured in the distillation that would be removed from a second spirits run like happens in virtually all other distillation traditions. Mm. So, and there are probably health benefits to that that don't exist in other spirits for that reason. Mm -hmm. There's actually been uh, high quality clinical research in, done in Japan that shows uh, that shochu is better for reducing your risk of diabetes and also... Uh, your um it, it's heart healthy and mm. it prevents blood clots right. so it actually you're not supposed to say that an alcohol is healthy because let's be clear drinking alcohol <laughs> is not healthy but shochu is a he healthier alcohol than mm. others right so and delicious too yes it is all right so uh so you moved to fukuoka last year so what's the reason for that so i'd never lived overseas uh i didn't really travel internationally other than canada and mexico uh, as a child so I never uh, really had much exposure. I, I grew up in a suburban neighborhood in Florida, so uh, not exactly a cosmopolitan <laughs> uh, hub. And, but I got really interested in Japan uh, through my exposure to food and drinks here. And then, as I said, I, you know, when, I, when I visited, I fell in love with the area. And I really decided, you know, if I'm ever going to do this, I need to do it now. Mm. Uh, and I was... Just Fukuoka has always been my favorite city in Japan ever since I visited for the first time. Um, I mean, there's much stronger shochu culture in other cities in Kyushu. As the further south you get, the more shochu obsessed people are. Mm. <laughs> um, but Fukuoka just has a little bit of everything. You know, it's, it's very convenient. The airport is six minutes from the main train station mm. by subway. Uh, you, I, I now am cycling around Fukuoka to get anywhere because it's only it'll take me 30 minutes to get anywhere in the city wow or less and that's just it's so convenient mm. um, and it's got beautiful parks it's on the it's on the water so I can be near the ocean and mm. so there's just all sorts of reasons that I wanted to live there and then I had an opportunity uh, to to move there and I decided to take a sabbatical from my hospital or my university here in New York uh, to go and live in Japan for a year. And I got an opportunity at university there to do that. And I've now decided I want to stay, <laughs> at least for a while. Uh, so I'm back in New York to try to make that happen. Mm. Uh, it's really a, um, it's a special place. Right. Well, good luck. It's a benefit for the whole industry of shochu and Japanese beverage <laughs> industry. So, yeah, the more you absorb, you, the more you can spread all over to... I hope so. And I, I mean, I've been back... This is my third trip back to New York within the last year, so it's not like I'm completely gone. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's every likelihood that I will be back here at some point right. uh, permanently. So. Mm. Okay, so... All right, so let's talk about your life in Fukuoka. So uh, what do you like about it and uh, what do you don't like about it? I mean, you just, you know, like a geographical condition. That sounds amazing. But Sure. So summers are extremely hot and humid. <laughs> it reminds me of Florida. And I guess having grown up in Florida, I, I can tolerate it, but mm. it's certainly not comfortable. <laughs> uh, if I were to mention a minus. Um, and... But other than that, it really has... It's an extremely convenient place to live. Mm. Um, I 
fortunately, and my Japanese has improved quite a bit living there because I've been forced to. <laughs>、uh, I was I always learned Japanese from a, a speaking and listening perspective because I was working in in the distillery and、mm. I need, needed to be able to communicate with the other staff.、Um, but I never really focused on writing and reading. And now when I go to an izakaya by myself, I need to be able to read the menu,、oh. uh, and I need to be able to read read road signs and things like that.、Uh, I was cycling. Very early in my in my move there, I was cycling out in a rural area, and there was this series of signs, and I didn't know what they <laughs> meant. And then I got to the basically the road was closed because there'd been a you know a,、mm. a mudslide or something. So I would have saved myself you know several kilometers of, of cycling <laughs> had, I, had I realized I needed to take a de- detour.、Mm, so that's the best way to learn the language. That's right. Right.、Uh, so.、Um, So this is I wanted to discuss it. You opened a cool bar shortly after you moved to Fukuoka, and it's called the Yokadam. And、uh, I thought it was very stable. It's like you don't waste any minute. <laughs> <laughs> you may make a lot of、uh, you know experience very meaningful. So what is the concept of a、uh, Yokadam, and why did you open it? It was it was completely opportunistic and and random almost.、Uh, there was a there's a wine store. In Fukuoka, called New York Wines.、Mm, interesting, right? <laughs> right. And I was like, "Why is there a New York wine <laughs> shop in Fukuoka?" And I walked in, and I met Brian, Brian Dorfman, who's who's who was the owner, and he he was a New Yorker who actually did audio studio design, much like the space we're in,、uh, and he had his own his own business here, and、uh, due to some personal reasons, he needed to stop doing that and for a while. And when he came back to New York.、Uh, His his business had dried up. He didn't have any clients, so he was like, and he had just traveled in Japan as part of his,、uh, you know, his time off, and he just fell in love with it. And actually, it, he should tell the story. You should have him on, him、okay. on the show. Okay, I'm hoping. Tell, yeah, yeah. I'm going to tell it anyway because it's the funniest thing. He was on his flight to Japan, and the stewardess was asking him, "Oh, you know," and he said it's his first time. And she said, "So where are you visiting?" And he named, you know. Tokyo, Kyoto, Osaka—you know the usual places—and she said, "Oh, you should go to Fukuoka. I'm from there. You're going to love it." <laughs> and so, once he got to Japan, he ended up booking a flight down to Fukuoka, and he absolutely fell in love with the city.、Mm. And so, when he got back to New York, and he realized it was time for a life change,、uh, and he had gone—he had actually、uh, gone to school up in the Finger Lakes area, up、mm. in Ithaca. And so, he had actually in school met several.、Uh, Children of of wine producers and other you know New York State alcohol producers, and he ended up、uh, deciding to import New York State、uh, craft <laughs> alcohols, wine, cider, beer, and and spirits to Japan,、mm. and he decided to set up shop in Fukuoka of all places. It sounds like a sounds like very coincidental, but it's almost like an accumulated destiny piece of destiny, right? That's、and、right. So it turns out we we had mutual friends in New York. We actually learned Japanese from the same Japanese teacher here, <laughs> and、uh, we just hit it off. He's he's just a very easygoing guy, and he's you know he's doing what he loves. And、uh, so when I when I visited his his shop, we decided to just sit down and talk. And he took me into the back room, and there was a big sort of conference table, and it was you know a lot of boxes of of wine and spirits and things. And we were talking. I said, "What do you do with this back room?" And he said, "I don't really. It's just sort of a storage room in my office, and sometimes I do events back here." I, I was like, "Have you ever thought about opening a bar?" And he kind of looked around and he said, "That's a great idea." <laughs> and so、uh, I roped Christopher Pellegrini into the project.、Um, I'm not sure if he was happy about that or not, but we all 
chipped in for the renovation. And, and so I guess to pause, in, in the States, we have the three-tier system, which means you can't be an alcohol producer, a distributor, and a, uh, a retailer. And as a retailer, in most states, you can't both sell alcohol to drink on-premise and take away bottles, mm. right? Uh, it's 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 easier with if, with wines and with beers, but when you, when spirits enter the equation, mm. it's 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 virtually impossible. So, but in Japan, they don't have anything like that. Mm. Your license is to sell alcohol, and actually, you don't even need like if you open an izakaya in Japan, you don't need a alcohol license. I didn't know that. All you need is a health inspection to make sure that you're not going to make people sick. Wow. And like if you have a fire, you're not going to kill all your customers. Right. right? So. It's, it's very much about safety, and it's mm. only focused on, on food preparation. And so anyone can sell alcohol in their shop, and it doesn't matter what kind of alcohol. Wow. So it's very, very liberal compared to mm. the States. You know, they didn't, they didn't have a prohibition, right? And, and our alcohol laws now are really a legacy of prohibition and organized crime. Mm. Uh, and so we ended up probably four to six weeks after that conversation in, in the back of his, his liquor shop, we had a functioning bar <laughs> and uh, I had, um, and, but we needed someone to run it because Brian was running the liquor store during the day and we were extending the hours into mm-hmm. the evening and he didn't want to work from you know, right. <laughs> noon to midnight, seven days a week. So it turned out that a, a friend of mine from Kyoto, uh, Ryo Uchida, who's from Kagoshima, but he, um, he was working in, in, in Kyoto he had just resigned from his izakaya that he was managing. Mm. So he had service experience as a manager. <clears throat> and I, was, I asked him, would you consider moving to Fukuoka uh, to, <laughs> to run our, our, uh, our bar? And he's been a godsend. He's, he's, he's bilingual. He lived in Australia for a little while. Mm. Uh, and he loves shochu. He knows it very, very deeply. He's actually been able to teach... Christopher and I and Brian much more about each specific brand wow. than we probably would have been able to figure out on our own. And uh, the customers love him mm. and he's very happy. Wow. So it just all came together very quickly. Uh, we started with, I think, about 10 or 12 shochu and we're up to about 20 brands now. And we're, we're, we're expanding slowly mm. and we're only serving uh, what I would call craft shochu. So Often customers, Japanese customers will come in for the first time and they'll be looking for some of the main brands, the popular brands. Mm. Uh, but those, those popular brands are all, they're very good, but they're mass produced. Mm. And they're not necessarily, they're made with, with machines and like they have, you, you'll go into the distilleries and they have these high tech computers monitoring temperature, the fermentation and things like that. And you go to a craft distiller and, you know, the, the Toji, who's the mm. master distiller, he's in there with a thermometer. You know, right. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's just a, it, it, you know, the craftsmanship and the, the, the his, history behind the craft church is just really, really fascinating to me. So often when people come in and ask for something, we don't have it. And I, most people have never, they don't recognize any of our labels. Wow. Because it's all very small makers. Um, but because of uh, Ryo's knowledge, he can, if somebody says, oh, do you have any, do you have Kurokirishima? Which of course we don't. It's the biggest brand in Japan. Um he says, no, but I have this sweet potato shochu made with black koji. Mm. Uh, and, you know, so he can always point them to something similar wow. that's being made by a craftsman rather than by a machine. Mm. So, um, so is it centrally located in the city? It's actually not that convenient. Uh, it's on Keiaki Dori mm. in the Akasaka neighborhood. So it's about a 10 or 
12 minute walk from Akasaka station. Mm. Uh, and there's, there's buses that go directly there. Um, but there's not a convenient subway, but Keakidori is, um, is considered like the Park Avenue of Fukuoka. So <laughs> when, when we say New York wines on Keakidori to anybody in Fukuoka, they're like, oh, wow. Oh, it, wow. it must be, you know, a really special shop. Mm. So the, the, the store is still called New York Wines. The, mm. the front is the li- liquor store and in the back is, is the, the standing bar, it's, mm. uh, which is very uh, popular in right. Fukuoka. They call them kakuuchi. Mm. And that's a standing bar inside a liquor store. And they're very, very common in Fukuoka, especially. Mm. And um, so Rio's taken a calling at the New York zone and the Kyushu zone. <laughs> so the front of the shop and the back of the shop. Right. Uh, cool is that? And, we, you know, we have separate Google pins, which is sort of silly. And it's almost like we didn't never needed to name the bar something other than New York wines. Mm. But because it's called Yokoban, which is actually a Kagoshima dialect for a great night out with friends. Um people understand that it's two separate concepts and they're very different in their feel. Mm-hmm. And we do have tables in the, in the, in the, uh, in the New York wine side. So you can actually sit and have a drink there. You don't have to stand oh. in, in the back, but the back right. is standing only. It's kind of co-promoting too. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And everything's craft. That's the ni- nice thing about it. So all of the New York state products are, are small, uh, you know, farm distilleries and, and winemakers and craft beer. And then all of the shochu. And we also have awamori from Okinawa. Mm. And actually, we just added Japanese rum uh, to the menu. There's, there's one... It's, no, I think there's four rum makers in Japan. This is the oldest. This, this is the first company to make Japanese rum. Mm. And we haven't visited the distillery yet because they're on an outlying island in Amami, mm. in Kagoshima. And, but when, when we called them to see if we could get a sample, they said, no, you have to buy a bottle. <laughs> because it's so small. Because <clears throat> it's so small, and the other the other distilleries just send us samples, you know, and then and then when when we placed an order with them, we had to do it by phone, and fax, <laughs> because everybody still faxes in Japan. And then when we got the invoice from them, it was all handwritten, like they there's and it, apparently it's a very old couple that are running it. Mm. So I'd love to get down there and visit. Uh, and their their rum is delicious, but uh, really. Yeah, they're they're just they're very old school and they do things their way and mm. don't really want to be bothered by right. new customers. <laughs> well, Amami is uh, how, how far is it from uh, Fukuoka? It's a uh, about I guess it's less than a ninety minute flight. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really not that bad, uh, but you'd have to get no. I guess no. From Fukuoka, it's probably ninety minutes. Mm. I flew from last time I went. I flew from Kagoshima, okay. and that was like less than an hour because mm. uh, Amami is part of Kagoshima Prefecture. But Amami is. Uh, cluster of islands situated between Kyushu and Okinawa mm. it actually used, it's part of the UQ islands right. which is what Okinawa consists of mostly but Amami was separated from the UQs uh, when the Satsuma domain uh, which was uh, the former name of Kagoshima mm. they invaded Amami and took it over and they converted it into a sugar plantation mm. and so the, the Satsuma do- domain actually became very rich and powerful because sugar was such a cash crop Right. Uh, so they took it from the Yukus, which was the old name of Okinawa, and eventually they subjugated the Yukyu Islands. But they allowed the emperor, the, the king of Okinawa, to remain in power. Mm-hmm. But he had to pay. Um, to, he had to pay the Satsuma domain, and the Satsuma domain kindly shared that with uh, the shogun. Mm. So that's basically how they got permission to go and invade Okinawa. Right. And the other nuance to it that I didn't, I don't think I really explore in the book. Is, we haven't talked about the book very much yet, yep. but um, <laughs> the, these stories, some of these stories are in there. The, um, 
the Chinese, the Japanese never agreed to pay, what's the term? Um, basically, an annual fee to、mm-hmm. the Chinese emperor.、Mm-hmm. The Japanese never agreed to do that, which means that they were prohibited from tra- trading with China. So the Ryukyus and Korea actually became go between trading posts.、Oh, so、right. the Chinese and Japanese could trade indirectly through those countries. And it actually made both of those countries wealthy by facilitating trade between、mm. China and Japan. Right. So. That was interesting. So, <laughs> and I heard that、uh, like, Okinawa eventually lost that right to trade in between. I mean, it's kind of their direct trade became like, more common. That's so, right. That's right. right. So, well, that's interesting. Yeah. So, that's why, so going back to the sugar、oh. plantation time, that's why they have great、um, uh, you know, sugar based product, which is a、uh, mummy. Kokuto. Kokuto shochu. shochu.、Yeah. So, Kokuto is. We, Christopher and I have been having a, a running debate for about two or three years about what to call Kokuto shochu in English.、Mm. Uh, because it's a, it's a, it's a dried,、uh, unrefined sugar.、Mm. So,、um, so it's not, you, can't, you can't say sugar cane. You can't say molasses.、Mm. Uh, and if you say brown sugar, my argument is that brown sugar that we get in the States is actually part, partly refined. Mm.、Uh, Kokuto is not refined. It's, 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 it looks like dark chocolate. Right. right. And it comes in these big blocks because it's、mm-hmm. dried.、Uh, and uh, so we've decided just to call it Kokuto. Right. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense, right?、Mm-hmm. Yeah, you don't want to、like, make it into something like rice wine or something like that. That's right. That's right. The, you know, I, I was calling it black sugar, but then there's, there's other kinds of black sugar from Southeast Asia that are a little bit different than Kokuto.、Mm. And we didn't want people to think that it was. Right. Not native to Japan.、Mm. So we've just decided to call it Kokuto. Sounds good to me. So Kokuto from now on. That's <laughs> Let's、right. call it Kokuto. Yeah, so actually, that when,、uh, so the Imami Islands、uh, after the war were held by the US government. And when the Americans signed the treaty with Japan to return the Imami Islands to Japan,、uh, they actually codified the Kokuto shochu industry、mm. in, in that treaty, as、okay. I understand it. So. Since that time, only, only, the only place you can make Kokuto Shochu in Japan is in the Imami Islands.、Mm. So it really kind of protected their economy、right. uh, because they, they were very, very poor.、Mm. I mean, obviously, when it, when they were essentially slaves during the, the Shogun period,、right. during the Tokugawa. And、uh, even after the war, sorry, after the, after the modernization of Japan, they still remained a very, very poor、mm. uh, cluster of islands. And they're still one of the poorest areas of Japan.、Mm. Uh, but the, with 28 distilleries, All making Kokuto Shochu, it's helped support their economy.、Mm, and now rum, hopefully. That's right. Right. Yes, I really wish I could try that too. So, yeah, hopefully.、Um, are they big, really like a small, very small production? They're extremely small, as far as we can tell. And what's funny is they, everything comes in, in Shochu bottles, it, but it's labeled rum. So it's 40% <laughs> alcohol. I'm very curious about how they make it because it, you can taste the Kokuto. Mm. So, it's certainly made from Kokuto, but then the question is are they actually still using koji and making shochu but calling it rum?、Mm. Which they could do. Interesting. Wow. So. There's so many like, undiscovered regulational, like all those holes and magics. That's right. Yeah. Well, maybe next time you can just come back and talk about、uh, Japanese Kokuto and、uh, rum. Sure. I should have brought a bottle, but.、Uh, <laughs> next <laughs> time.、Um, yeah, so you said, you know, the charm of shochu is. A lot of the distilleries are cracked, but how, what's the percentage? How cracked are they right now? That's a really difficult question to answer. They, so, 
there are around, as I understand it, there are about 800 or so uh, shochu licenses mm. that are currently held. It may be a little bit more than that. A lot of them aren't actively producing. Mm -hmm. I think there are probably around 400 to 450 active producers throughout wow. Japan. Most of them concentrated in Kyushu. Um, and it's, it's, you never know, unless you visit, how mm. they make it, right? <laughs> and there are actually, uh, there's several uh, distilleries that don't have distilleries. They, mm. they, they, ha they hire other distilleries to contract oh, to distill their products, right. and then they sell it under their own label. Mm. Now, they might, they might have had distilleries in the past, but for whatever reason, they've closed, but they continue to sell the brand mm. through, that, through the uh, contract production. Right. So you never know until you go mm. to, the, to the distillery, whether or not it exists. Right. Um, but that's, that's rare. Most, most distilleries do have their own facilities. Um, it's really hard to guess how many are, are large facilities versus not, mm. uh, because I, as I said, I really, really love the craftsmanship. So those are the distilleries I try to visit. And you'll learn from talking to the, you know, if you meet the makers at a trade show or something, mm. you'll learn a bit about their production and that sort of thing and get a sense of right. how craft, crafty they are. Mm. Um, most shochu is made uh, as you know, as mass-produced product, right. just because the the volumes that these large factories can make is so mm -hmm. much higher than than right. what a craftsman can make. So the out of uh, four hundred plus active distilleries, may um, you know probably more than half of it is produced by like ten percent of the distilleries or something like that. I would right. say eighty percent of it's made by ten percent of the distilleries. You yeah. have probably seven or eight very large companies mm. that dominate. Right. the market um and then the but then you have all these very small family-run distilleries and just to give you an, a, a sense of scale the um the new kirishima distillery they just opened a new facility to increase production of kuro kirishima which as i said is the most popular brand in japan if if i if there wasn't if it wasn't lost in translation they're now producing four hundred thousand liters of shochu a day <gasps> a day <laughs> a day wow. and they make it all year round Mm. The distillery where I work, they make about 40,000 liters of raw distillate a year. Wow. So 10% of Kirishima's annual, or sorry, 10% of Kirishima's daily production, mm. they make annually. Wow. Wow. Well, in a way, we need those big producers, right? To familiarize people with shochu, but, but then the small producers could be pressured. So, but they... They need them to. So That's like, right. <laughs> it, it really is symbiotic. And I think that fortunately the large producers and small producers realize this mm. and they do work together. Right. And of course you have personalities and there's, there's rivalries and people who don't <laughs> like each other and that kind of thing. And, right. But for the most part, you'll find, you'll, you know, especially the small producers will never say anything bad about the large producers and the large producers won't say anything bad about the small producers. Mm. It's more the same size producers that tend to, right. to you know, be fighting for market share and trying to mm. outdo each other. Right. Well, I hope that small produce, producers can maybe add the value, increase the price because being, you know, craft and hopefully more organic and those, you know, added value found in small producers, then, then they can survive with additional income. Yes. Right. And, that, and I think that's what happens once your brand becomes popular, even mm -hmm. if you can't produce more than you're already making, you can start to raise the price. But shochu is so cheap in Japan. It's extremely affordable. So a bottle, 
standard, what we would think of as a standard size bottle here in the States would sell for about, for a mass produced brand would probably be seven to 900 yen in a convenience store. Mm. Um, and but like a very, very fine craft shochu that's very hard to get with the same alcohol percentage would be about 12 or 1300 yen. Wow. So it's only three or $4 more, mm. you know, so it, the premium is not that high. Right. Now there are some very, very famous producers that sell very limited quantities and they'll actually just auction their bottles mm. or uh, they'll do lotteries. Mm. And so they might sell those bottles for up to 3,000 yen, so about $30 or so. Right. Uh, but that's still very, still, very cheap compared, compared to, to like a scotch or a right. you know, mezcal or that sort of thing. Right. So, yeah, but it sounds like the direction of the industry is good now. I think they're struggling. Uh, mm. The Drinking in Japan is decreasing uh, over time. The population is aging and shrinking. So they currently have negative population growth. Right. So population decline um and the older as people get older they don't drink as much mm. um and then also the younger generation's not drinking mm. as much uh and you know shochu had a big boom in the in the early 2000s and now it's really been fading and yet everything's fading all mm. of the alcohol sales in japan except for whiskey Right. Japanese whiskey is, is now extremely popular all That's over the world. That's funny, though. They kind of tanked and came back for marketing or quality. That's right. Yeah. It, it all goes in waves, and I, I do think the shochu makers will be fine. Um, it, but like there were two years ago, there were 120 active distilleries in Kagoshima. Mm. Uh, and now there are, I believe, 113. So seven of them have closed just in the last two years. Oh, wow. So the, the industry is struggling, and they're trying to find ways to... Uh, to survive. Mm. Um, I do think export hopefully will become part of that more than it is currently. Mm. Most shochu is consumed in Japan. Right. Well, I heard, uh, I spoke to one of those uh, major producers of alcoholic beverages in Japan and uh, he said, so gin and vodka has only one, I think like less than 3% of market share because everybody drinks shochu instead of other distilled um, you know, types of alcohol. So, yeah, that's interesting. I'm, I'm, I hope shochu is going to stay solid and it's healthier. <laughs> so that's what I hope. Yes. And I, you know, I've, I've done the math and I think shochu, if, if shochu could reach 1% of the U.S. spirits market, that would increase, a four, that would, uh, increase export by 40-fold. Mm. That's how little shochu is consumed in America. Wow. So wow. it would be a huge, huge boon to the shochu industry if we could just convince 1% of American spirits drinkers to right. switch to shochu. It's easy. Once they know. <laughs> Let's hope so. <laughs> we rely on you, Stephen. <laughs> All right. So uh, we'll take a quick break here. And when we come back, we'll talk about uh, Stephen's exciting new book, The Complete Guide to Japanese Drinks. So please stay with us. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant, from French to Pan-Asian to American, and that is why they are located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Corin's Tribeca showroom is home to the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan. Stop by to view the exquisitely designed tableware and the well natural sharpening stones. 
They have a whole range of knife services from repair and rust removal to reshaping and realigning. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the highest quality Japanese design to your table so you can experience the unparalleled quality of Japanese craftsmanship in your home or restaurant. For more information, visit corin.com. Are you enjoying this show? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. I'm Luke Griffin, and I'm the host of Bushwick Podcast. Each week, we share the remarkable stories of how artists, activists, and entrepreneurs collide in Bushwick, a special Brooklyn neighborhood that's changing faster by the day. You can find Bushwick Podcast wherever you get your podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome back. You're listening to Japanese Broadcasting Live from a studio in Bushwick, Brooklyn. I'm your host, Akiko Tema, and my guest today is Stephen Lyman, who is the leading expert of shochu and the author of The Complete Guide to Japanese Drinks. He's visiting from Fukuoka, Japan, where he lives now. So now let's talk about your new book. Um, so the title is The Complete Guide to Japanese Drinks, and um, it's not a just guide. So you covered everything from the history to actual, you know, definition of drinks, but also the cultural connotations of each subject. I really enjoyed reading it. So it, it's like, it's, it's a guidebook, but it's beyond. It's like a good read. Thank you. Yeah. So, uh, so uh, why did you write the book? <laughs> so when I, as a child, actually, when I uh, realized I wasn't going, probably in high school, I realized I wasn't going to be a major league baseball player. <laughs> uh, I had to find a new dream. And my dream was actually to become an author. Mm. Uh, the two things I want to do is become a professor and become an author. And I've been a professor now for close to 20 years. Wow. Uh, and then, and as a, as a professor, I write scientific manuscripts. So I could do writing, but it's very technical. Not a lot of people read them, <laughs> <laughs> other than people in, in my field. Mm. Uh, but at least I could do some writing. And I, I got to write some book chapters as part of that. And then I... Through Shochu, I started my website, and I was writing a lot of content for that. And I eventually was asked to do some, write some articles for different uh, trade publications and things like that in the alcohol world. And then, but I always wanted to write a book, and mm. uh, I, I thought it would be a Shochu book. Obviously, that's my my main area of interest in Japanese alcohol. But uh, an opportunity arose um, to to write a when I pitched the, the, the Shochu book to the, to the publisher, which is a Tuttle. Tuttle is uh, an international publisher, primarily of Asian-focused mm. uh, literature. Uh, when I pitched the Shochu book to them, the editor said, you know, maybe you can write that in the future, but we're not sure that the, the market's ready for it. Uh, Christopher's, the, uh, the Shochu handbook remains the only English-language mm. uh, Shochu-focused book. Uh, and... There, so there, there, I do think there's an opportunity for another Shochu book. But uh, <laughs> they, they said, well, why don't you just write about all Japanese alcohol? We could use that sort of thing. And I had um, become friendly with the author of a book that was called Drinking Japan. Mm. It's, just, it's a little pocket guide. As a, it's almost, it serves as a travel guide for drinkers who are mm. visiting Japan. Uh, and he, uh, I asked him you know, whether or not he would be interested in, in writing with me. Uh, and he's actually moved back to the UK. He was a journalist in in Tokyo at the time he wrote the book, but then he ended up moving back to the UK, and now he actually works in healthcare, so he does very similar work nice. to what I do. Um, and he said, you know, I'm not really in a position to, you know, travel around and visit breweries and distilleries and, and bars and things like that. But uh, I'm, what he did is he he 
allowed me to use all of his source material from his original book. So a lot of mm -hmm. the research and history and things like that, he had a very, very competent translator who had helped him with a lot of that original research. And so I actually have a stack of notebooks mm. uh, from him in my apartment here. Uh, and then he, he gave me about 20,000 photos that he had taken for the original wow. book. And uh, then I had to go and do my own photography once, once we got the, the deal. Um, and so I ended up taking all of his source material and, and turning it into this. And so his, his contribution was the research, mm. right? And, um, but it was, it was incredibly helpful. I don't think I could have done what I did without, mm. without well, that Well, I material. was very impressed how detailed, and I could see that you are such a researcher that it's like all those, you know, facts and deep insight into what happened. And, you know, those are really, I think it's your work too, but it's crazy how, how like this, how many pages is the book? I, I'm not even sure. There's <laughs> so much in there. Let's see. Hundred. What's well, 159 total pages? 100, um, 160. Okay. Um, but it's a it, it's coffee coffee table size, right? It's actually a, quite a bit of material. Mm. It, a friend of mine who just uh, I met last night here in New York. I gave him a copy. You know, for he's he actually uh, designed the the Kampai website for me. So I mm. I gave him a copy of the book. And he was leafing through and he goes, this is like a textbook. I was like, what do you expect when a professor writes a book? <laughs> yeah, well, it, it's, uh, it can be for the facts. And, but you, you read through, like, you can't stop. It's a perfect book and to read over a glass of shochu or anything sake. Or, by the way, what, what do you cover in the book? Okay, so uh, I, what I decided to do is um, split the book into two parts. Um, it really has a third part, which I'll talk about. But the first part is, is washu. So Japanese alcohol traditions. Mm. And that's, of course, sake, shochu, awomori from Okinawa, and uh, umeshu and other fruit liqueurs. Mm. So umeshu is often called plum wine, which is, it's not really a wine because the, the plums themselves don't contribute any of, they're, they're not fermented in right. the alcohol. They're, they're there to add flavor to usually a shochu base. Mm, right. So they take, they take a clear spirit and then they, they age uh, the plums with some sugar right. uh, in in it, and uh, but then the the Japanese do that with all kinds of fruits, mm -hmm. and even with other herbs and things like that. Uh, the weirdest one, of course, is habushu, <laughs> which is habu is a uh, pit viper, right. and so in Okinawa they have this tradition of of uh, essentially drowning a pit viper in mm -hmm. in awamori and leaving it, and they what it, what it does is apparently, and I'm, I. I don't proclaim, proclaim to be an expert at all. Uh, the venom and that sort of thing leaks out of the viper, but mm. it's so diluted mm. in the liquid that it's, it becomes harmless, or oh. at least it's not lethal. Right. And the, but apparently that venom is invigorating. Mm. And so it's, it's, it's almost like a Chinese medicine. Right. right? And it tastes horrible. Mm. <laughs> but it, it actually is, is a thing in Japan. Right. So this is supposed to be giving you energy or maybe like a homeopathic effects. That's know. right. I think it's probably placebo, but I do feel, I'm not sure though, because the, the first time I ever tried it was in Tokyo. I was out drinking with my friends and we just happened into, a, we were in Golden Guy, mm. you know, in Shinjuku. In Shinjuku. And I, sort of on a dare, I, I tried it and I, I was buzzing. <laughs> it's, it's like I had a triple espresso at wow. two in the morning. So I think there may be some truth to the invigoration part of it, but I don't really know what the, 
the chemical properties are. Wow. I don't think I've tried that. <laughs> I've seen it, but I've never tried that. Yeah. So. <laughs> Try with caution, I think. Okay. <laughs> um, so that's, so that, sorry, that was, that was an aside, but so that's the umeshu and, and fruit liqueurs chapter, but I do get into, uh, kaj, what is it? Kajitsushu? Kajitsu, yeah. Yeah. Right, so, fruits. Oh, liqueur. that's fruits. And then there's, there's another one. Sorry, I should have refreshed my memory. Because I do also touch on the medicinal alcohols. So there's the uh, yak, yakushu. Yeah, yakushu. Yeah, yakushu. Yeah, so that's, um, that's more herbs and, and things. It's much more like the digestifs from Europe. Mm. Uh, you know, it sometimes can be bitter or, you know, have right. like, what's the um, green, green chartreuse, for example, has something like 200 organic, uh, mm. <laughs> you know, plants and herbs and things in it. And, and the yakushu has, has that. Mm. style and it's it's not for everybody but it's just it's another kind of alcohol that's produced in japan right. so that's the first half is washu the second half is yoshu so yoshu is western alcohol so mm. uh, from outside of japan but that are now made in japan and all of these really arose uh, after commodore perry sailed his black sheeps into edo bay and, and opened japan mm. uh, and so it's it's a uh, beer wine whiskey and then cocktails mm. uh, and so all three of those, so wine, whiskey, and beer all started to be produced in Japan after the 1850s. Right. And uh, the Japanese have been growing grapes as, a, as an exotic food for, for centuries, but they never made wine from it. Mm. And they really didn't know how. So very early on, they were using sake-making equipment to try to make wine. <laughs> and it wasn't very good, apparently. Mm. Of, None, none of it exists anymore, of course, because that was, you know, right. 100, <laughs> <That makes> sense. <laughs> 150 years ago. Uh, so they started sending uh, young men over to France to learn how to make wine. Mm. And it was then that they were able to come back and start a real, real wine industry. But the most, uh, probably the best Japanese winemaker uh, didn't make wine in Japan. Mm. He, he made wine in California. Mm. And uh, he was actually a, a, the son of a samurai. And he was sent out of Japan illegally along with uh, 17 other students. He was, they took the 18 brightest children from Kagoshima. Actually, I think there might have been 15 students and four chaperones. Mm. He was one of the brightest students, and they were all sons of samurai. And they were sent to England to study, because the, the Satsuma domain, mm. they realized that they needed to modernize. They'd had a brief skirmish with the, with the English, and the, the English like essentially burned down Kagoshima City. Mm. And so... Uh, but rather than remain enemies of the English, they became friendly and uh, the English cooperated and helped them mm. sneak these children out of the country. And they all went to England to study. And of those children, 14 of them came back to Japan. Uh, one opened Sapporo Beer. One started the, the first stock exchange. One was the first minister of education. <laughs> one of them started a university. Uh, so they, they all came back and they were very successful. Mm. Uh, two exceptions. Well, he was successful. So the winemaker is uh, Nagas uh, Kanai Nagasawa. Mm. He ended up at Cornell University. He was the first Asian student to study at Cornell in New York. And then he ended up joining a cult. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 but his job at the cult was to make wine wow. on their New York State uh, property. But he and the cult leader realized that you could make better wine in California. So they moved to Santa Rosa, California, established a new commune. And then uh, when the cult leader retired, Nagasawa became 
nominally he became the cult leader, but he didn't really care about the cult. He just cared about making wine. Wow. So his winery actually ended up being the largest winery in California. And he was the first California wine to export to Europe. I didn't know anything about that. And unfortunately, uh, because of Prohibition, it all sort of, it fell apart. And he died a year after Prohibition ended. Mm -hmm. But even during Prohibition, he was very clever. Uh, he would sell grape juice. And on the label, it would very clearly explain how to make sure it didn't turn into wine. <laughs> so people could make their own wine at home. <laughs> wow. So it's, is he in the book? He is, yeah. <laughs> okay. So, well, I really have to read through the whole pages. Mm. Um, yeah, so when uh, is it coming out officially? Officially, it's October 1st in the U.S. Uh, I've asked the publisher to let me know uh, when it'll come out in Japan and in Europe and Canada. Um, it is available for pre-order mm. on Amazon, and pre-order helps. So please consider pre-ordering the book. Mm. So uh, listeners, it's uh, The Complete Guide to Japanese Drinks by Stephen Lyman from Taro. That's right. And my co-author, Chris Bunting. Mm. Let's not forget Chris right. and his, his valuable contribution. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, okay. And uh, so uh, what was the biggest challenge in writing the book? Like, you know, I mean, of course you had Chris' help, but anything you discovered or you had a hard time understanding? or I think that's a great question. Probably... The most challenging part of it, I mean, I've been writing for a long time, so it wasn't, I didn't have writer's block or anything like that. I, I could just sit down and, and <laughs> write. Um, but probably the hardest part was getting all the photography organized. Oh. Uh, because it's, it's, a, it's a very colorful book. There's lots of pictures. Mm. And uh, I, I had a lot of photos from my trips. But the thing is, is when you're printing photos, you need very high resolution photos. So mm. things from iPhones don't work. As high res as the new iPhones are, that, right. that's still not good enough for, for print publication usually unless you're just putting a very small picture and mm. you know if you're just printing a small picture um so the the guide ended up there get, organizing all the photos was the, the biggest challenge i had christopher's photos uh mm. and then i i had ended up taking thousands myself and then i basically when i realized there were gaps I had to use, um, I just basically, on my social network through Twitter and, <laughs> and Facebook, I just reached out and asked if anybody had high-resolution photos that they'd taken on trips to Japan. Mm. And I had a few people who ended up sending me some great, great photography that ended up in the oh, book. Oh, wow. Oh, that's nice. That's a very collaborative that's right. <laughs> efforts. Right. So, um, yeah, and uh, so did you interview a lot of people? I did, and I visited a lot of uh, breweries and distilleries. Mm. Uh, I, I got tremendous help from the producers uh, as far as just sharing their knowledge, and I learned so much. And mm. there's actually information on the sake chapter that I don't think has ever been in English before, <laughs> which I was a little bit nervous writing about sake because there's so many great sake books already, already from John Gauntner. Mm. Uh, Philip Harper's written you know, really interesting things. There's just great sake writing already. Mm. So that was probably the chapter I was most nervous about writing. <laughs> and, but, uh, you know... I ended up having several sake experts read through it and make sure I wasn't making a fool of myself. And uh, John actually gave me some, I've never met him, but uh, we had oh, an email exchange. And ah. uh, he gave me some great, great advice about how to, to tweak some of it. Um, I was a little loose with my description of Koji. And mm. I, it, I think it's completely fair, uh, you know, it's, it's a very difficult topic to explain right. uh, in English. And uh, there's actually a Sake on Air podcast. Maybe I'm not supposed to mention <laughs> okay. competing uh, podcasts, but 
uh, their Koji episode. No, we are friends. So okay. We're collaborative. Yeah. Good, good. I, yeah. Their, their Koji episode very recently, like they explained things that I still didn't know about Koji, even though I've been working with it for, you know, seven years now. Mm. Um, and so the, but so the sake chapter ended up coming together really nicely. And actually there was a, uh, a Toji master brewer from, mm. uh, from Nara who just gave me amazing information. He uh-huh. sat down with me for, you know, I, I, I went to visit his brewery, but we spent about 10 minutes in the brewery and about three hours talking. <laughs> and he, he was drawing me diagrams and pictures and, wow. you know, explaining the entire history of Nara sake, because that's where sake actually, the, the modern style was developed in Nara by Buddhist priests. Mm. Uh, and he just gave me a wealth of information, wow. which is so much fun. So it sounds like a process. Well, it's a beautiful book. Thank and uh, I'm kind of, I didn't write it, but I feel, feel so proud of it. But your process... The writing the book must be really uh, precious, right? It was a special experience, and it, it was something I've always wanted to do. Right? Mm. And now that I've, I've done it, I hope I can do it again. Mm, right. Uh, so the next one is shochu. Maybe. Or uh, something else. Well, they, the, the publisher has talked to me about an izakaya guide. Mm. Um, and then they've also talked to me about a kyushu guide. Mm. And so I'm not exactly sure uh, what my next book will be, but yeah. I have a feeling it'll be with Tato. <laughs> That sounds great. All right. So, uh, yeah. So, good luck and uh, please uh, keep us posted. And where can we find your updates online? Ah, so my website is kampai.us. It, it, you can spell it K-A-M-P-A-I or K-A-N-P-A-I. Okay. Um, that doesn't have a lot of new information on it, but um, it will soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, on Instagram and Twitter, I am at shochu underscore danji. Mm, Danji's a man. It's like a, it, a Kyushu Danji is like a very stubborn. Yep, that was my dad. <laughs> <laughs> but I call myself Shochu Danji because I'm really stubborn about Shochu. Mm. I'm very picky. So, right. uh, And then I'm on Facebook and I have a Facebook group, Kampai, uh, which people are welcome to join. Also, Japanese Shochu page on Facebook is, is me as well. So there's lots of ways to, mm. to find me on social media. Right. All right. So very exciting. So hopefully I'll see you again in the studio. Yes, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for coming. Uh, so listeners, if you have any questions or comments about the show or show uh, suggestions for show topics of the guests, please let, contact us at japaneseheritageradionetwork.org or akikwatema.com. Japanese is live at 3 p.m. on Mondays and always available at heritageradionetwork.org, iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. I engineer it, uh, Matt Patterson, and thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.